Although on Just the Right Book, we are generally interviewing authors of nonfiction uh, books, this recording will be a conversation uh, that we did live at the Schubert Theater with ta Coates. So ta is known, is renowned as a nonfiction writer, won the National Book Award in 2015. And the book that he and I will be in conversation about is, in fact, his debut fiction book called The Water Dancer. I was really excited about this conversation. I was mesmerized by his new book, and I was just so keen on having a conversation with someone whose observations about race in America today are considered are considered one of the leading voices today in that conversation. So here's the live conversation uh, that occurred at the Schubert Theater. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Good evening. How does memory create power? How do you define freedom? And how does the emotional savagery of selling and separating members of a family destroy and define a human being? And most powerfully, in the midst of incredible trauma and loss, how does one find courage and how does love survive? These ideas and more are explored in Ta-Nehisi Coates' first novel, The Water Dancer. This extraordinary book has the speed and excitement of an adventure story, the heft, substance, and intellect of literary fiction, and all of this is imbued with the raw historical weight of slavery and the enslaved. Along the way, we are transported, riveted by the people we meet, and stunned by their courage, their love, their weakness, their treachery, their resilience, and all that makes them human. We know ta Coates as the author of the memoir, The Beautiful Struggle, the book-length letter to his son and National Book Award-winning book, Between the World and Me, and the essay collection titled Eight Years of Power. He was a national correspondent of The Atlantic and has written for most major newspapers and publications in our country. All this, and in addition, he writes a Black Panther and Captain America series for Marvel Comics. It is a distinct honor and pleasure for us to welcome Ta-Nehisi Coates to R.J. Julia and New Haven. Please join me in a warm and robust welcome. Um, this is uh, the next to the last stop, stop uh, of the tour, um, and it's been a, a long and, and joyful and, and deeply rewarding uh, seven weeks. It's my last stop out of town before I go back home to New York. Um, 
And uh, you can tell uh, it's the end of the tour because I forgot my uh, blazer. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yo, I apologize for my appearance. Um, somebody went to fetch it. So if um, you see a young lady run a you know, jacket, I'll just you know, be very nice to her. Um, and be very nice to me as I put my jacket back on. Um, so um, between, the, um, sorry, listen, I, I can't even remember what book I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power is about uh, <laughs> um, the water dancer um, is, is, is uh, the story of uh, Hiram Walker. And um, Hiram has, uh, he's a young man enslaved on a plantation in, in Virginia. Um, his dad is actually the, 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 the proprietor. Uh, proprietor is a very nice word. Uh, the proprietor of the plantation, uh, his enslaver. Uh, and Hiram possesses a, a preternatural uh, memory. Um, or I should say he, he uh, possesses. Oh, there's my jacket. <laughs> oh, I can feel it. I'm so happy now. Wow. Thank you. Oh, okay, now we can do this. All right, okay. Okay, all right. Wow, I, I like the so lining. You said what? I like the lining. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Ooh, feel so much better. Suit supply. Um, so uh, Hiram uh, possesses this, this like uh, photographic memory. If, if Hiram were here, he could recite everything that I, I've just said, um, including uh, the details and the importance of me having on a jacket. Um, but when it comes to the things that are most intimate to him, his memory, uh, in fact, actually uh, fails him. Uh, and the memory that, that this book is mostly concerned with is the memory of his mother, who his father has sold off and Hiram has forgotten uh, because the trauma of it is, is just too close. Um, this is deeply tied to another struggle uh, that Hiram is, is going through in the book. Like, like all enslaved people, Hiram yearned for freedom. Um, but his sense of freedom, due to his status on the plantation of Lockless, uh, where, where he was enslaved, is very, very different than the sense of freedom of the other uh, community of enslaved people who he lives among. Hiram has a very individualistic sense of freedom. He can imagine freedom for himself. Uh, he can imagine freedom for uh, the woman that, that he's in love with, but he doesn't quite understand that that freedom, that the mean freedom, the, the thin freedom that he's thinking about is actually tied to uh, that larger community. Uh, and so uh, his journey throughout this book uh, really is, is those uh, two through lines working together, him trying to remember his mother, who I would say is the symbol of that, that, that larger community, and him coming to understand that his individual freedom can't be divorced from the freedom of the larger community. Um, a spoiler alert, Harlem does uh, attain some level of freedom uh, in the book. Um, though at the end of the book, there's still slavery, you should know that. Um, doesn't quite solve all of that. Um, and where he attains that freedom uh, first, and I guess most fully, is in uh, the city of, of Philadelphia. And there's a moment in the book uh, where Hiram is, 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 is meeting uh, with uh, some other agents of the Underground Railroad, and he's coming to really understand what their work is and, 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 and what it means to yearn for freedom in that broader kind of collectivist way, communal way, uh, that, that, that um, heretofore he has not really had the ability to touch. And so I just figured I would just, you know, since we're towards the end. At first they asked me if I wanted to read. I was like, absolutely not. You'll be lucky if I make it through this interview. But then, you know, I thought, you know, it, this is, um, it, it's not, I, I can't really see, I don't know how many people are out here. Um, but I can remember when I published my first book, uh, The Beautiful Struggle, and the very first 
uh, uh, reading that I did for that book. And there were like 15 people there. And um, half of those 15 people were related to me. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, taught, I teach at NYU and I always you know, tell my kids and whenever I'm talking to young writers, uh, no writer is promised an audience. And no writer deserves an audience just because they're writing. Um, I, I, you know, I am within uh, the fishbowl of, of, of the creation of the work, and so I can't quite, or I'm not the person to analyze, you know, what it is that drew, you know, all of you guys here, you know, on this very, very cold night where you could be doing something else. Um, but it's really, really important that I convey to you how thankful I am that you're here, and how grateful um, that 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 I am. And. <clears throat> And, and no matter how fatigued that I, that I convey that as, as best I possibly can. So I'll just read a short selection from this and then we'll proceed into our conversation, Roxanne. Oh, she's in her notes, okay. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's where you're supposed to be. That's where you're supposed to be. Leafing through the pages, I felt the stories come alive before me. I saw them as though I was right there. So that on the walk to the ferry and on the ferry itself and then all the way back to Philadelphia Station, legions of colored people, panoramas of their great escapes overlaid the geography. So that I saw them all before me, saw them coming up from Richmond and Williamsburg, from Petersburg and Hagerstown, from Long Green and Darby, from Norfolk and Elm. And I saw them fly from Kendaro to take Haven in Granville then bed down in Sandusky and rejoice just west of Burdenhand, not so far from Millersville, a small pass to Cedars. And I saw them fleeing with Irish girls, absconding with mementos of lost children, running with salt pork and crackers, running with biscuits, flying with cuts of beef, inhaling the last of the master's terrapin soup, taking drags of his Jamaican rum, and then out into the winter, thoughtless and shoeless, but freedom bound. Black maids running with dreams of holy union, running with double-barreled pistol and dirk so that when confronted by hounds, they pulled out yelling, shoot, shoot. They fled with young children dozed in the slumber, with old men who shuffled out into the frost, who died exposed in the woods with these words on their lips, man made us slave, but God willed us free. And in all of these words, and in each of these stories, I saw as much magic as anything I'd seen down in the goose Souls conducted as surely as I was out from its depths. And I saw them coming up on railroads, barges, river runner, skiff, and bribery coach. Coming up on horseback over hard snow and marches melting ice. They were fitted in ladies' dress and came up. In gentry clothes and came up. In dental bandage and came up. In sling and came up. In rags not worth the laundry ladies' washing, but came up. They bribed low whites and stole horses, crossed the Potomac in windstorm and darkness, came up as I had, driven by the remembrance of mothers or wives, sold south for the high crime of standing contrary before lust. They came up devoured by frost. They came up with tales of hard drinkers and overseers who took glee in applying the lash. They came up stowed like coffee in boats, braving turpentine, scarred and singed by salt water anointing, guilt racked for finding themselves so broken that they should bow before their own flogging for having held their brothers down under the master's lash. And the stories that day 
I saw them running out into the forest, clutching a Brussels carpet bag, yelling, I shall never be taken. I saw them boarding ferries, singing low and only to themselves. God made them birds and the greenwood tree, and all has got their mate, but soul sick me. I saw them that day at the Philadelphia docks, praying, hide the outcasts, betray not him that wandereth. I saw them wandering on Bainbridge and crying for all their dead, those who had taken ship for the final harbor from whence none shall ever return. All of them came to me from the papers, from the memories, all of them drawn up from pandemonium, up from slavery, up out of the jaws of the abomination, up out from under the juggernaut's wheels, singing before the sorcery of this underground. Thank you. <clears throat> it wouldn't have been that good without my jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing that reading. Um, so a couple of, I have enough questions as I, as I think I mentioned uh, to you earlier for us to be here for days, but <clears throat> I'll try to keep it down. Just so you know, there are about 700 people out there, not 15. Oh, now, now I'm nervous. So. <laughs> that just They're nice it. people. Oh, okay. They're nice people. So you say. Yeah. No, I know them all. <laughs> oh, okay. All 700. All. I know all 700. Okay. All right. I'll um, take your word for it. <laughs> so James Baldwin said... <clears throat> Writers aren't driven by inspiration. Mm. They're gripped by compulsion, mm. something that irritates you and won't let you go. That's the anguish of it. Do the book or die. Mm. What was it for you? I don't know about the die part. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it feels. But no, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, that, that is how it feels. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. You know, with this book, this is, you know... Um, a lot of people perceive this as this 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 great shift um, from nonfiction into fiction. Um, but actually, this book, it, at its inception, is older than uh, we basically almost everything, and we were eight years in power. Um, older than uh, uh, between the world and me, case for our race, all of that. Um, I, I started this, or started you know working towards this before that, and. Uh, while all of that was going on, like every time something would happen, I would have to leave this book. You know, I had to leave this book, go do Between the World mm -hmm. and Me, leave this book to go do, you know, my journalism at the Atlantic. <clears throat> and I, I said to Chris at one point, I said, listen, I'm scared this will never happen. Like, um, I'm not going to get back to this. And he said, and I think this is the truest thing, if uh, you don't get back to it, it never should have happened. Mm. Um, that then you, it was not meant to nah, happen. If you, you weren't, if you're not pulled by it, you know what I mean? If you're not, you know, feeling like, this has to happen or I'm going to die, um, then, you know, a book is a lot, of, a lot of work. You know, it shouldn't be done if you don't feel that way. And, and so you took 10 years to write this. Does mm -hmm. the book that we see here, how, how much does it resemble what you wrote 10 years ago as the story? Not much. Not much. <laughs> not, not much. Did it go through a lot of drafts? Did you ditch a lot of it? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, you know, it started off as, I, had, I always had this idea, it is like, Interracial family in Virginia, um, and I use family very explicitly. Um, I don't use it as a way of deadening or, um, you know, being euphemistic, but with some degree of irony. Uh, but an interracial family in Virginia, uh, Twitter members being black, two of them being white, two being uh, men, two being women, and just sort of 
doing this sort of Faulknerian, you know, discussion, you know, mm-hmm. amongst them. Um, and I, I wrote, I don't know, 20, 30,000 words of that. Um, and it wasn't very good. And that's okay. You know what I mean? I was, I was mm-hmm. learning to write. And then it went, um, I, it, it was actually in the course of writing one of those voices that the character um, of Hiram appeared, like he made himself manifest. And I decided that I was basically really interested in him. And he, and that's how you decided he would be your narrator. Yeah, I didn't really, I decided the other people weren't that interested in me. Right. Um, and, and you know, the other thing that was interesting to me, it, it, there were there were two different uh, pieces. The fact that it was set in Virginia mm-hmm. uh, rather than in the deeper south. Right. And the other, the other is uh, the water dancer focuses more on the emotional mm-hmm. savagery yeah. of slavery yeah. and the enslaved yeah. about parents being sold away from their kids, kids losing their parents, couples yeah. being separated more than the physical brutality yeah. of slavery. Why did you choose that to tell mm. your story rather mm. than what we often have seen, which deals with the physical brutality. Well, I, Virginia, I believe, is our oldest colony. I think so. I think I, I think actually, that's right. Yeah. Okay. If it's not, now we both said it. It's okay. true. Okay. All right. Exactly. Exactly. Again, I'm at that's the it. end of the tour, so forgive me. You know, my history's not so good. Um, but my my, with it being, you know, the oldest colony, that that was the first thing, right? So there was something almost progenital about picking Virginia, but more or just as significant uh, is that is some 40% of African-Americans in, their, in this country trace their ancestry back to Virginia. Um, wow. Yeah, uh, you will hear a lot of black people you know, say, well, my ancestors are from Mississippi um, or somewhere else in, in the deep South. Um, some of that's true, but for a lot of them, their ancestors are actually from Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's like that, for instance, her family's you know, from, from Mississippi up through Tennessee, but actually it starts in Virginia. And, and, and the reason why that's the case is, you know, even at the start of the Civil War, the largest uh, population of enslaved people was actually in Virginia. Um, there were like entire counties where, you know, 80, 90% of the population was actually enslaved or the people living in that county. Say we, that we, statistic again, because that's a pretty crazy statistic. Yeah, so there were counties in Virginia where 80 to 90% of the, of, of the people, of the people, the entire population of the county uh, was enslaved. This is, by the way, not particularly unusual. Um, Mississippi, South Carolina, uh, started the, the, the Civil War. The majority of people living in those states were enslaved. Period. Um, so it's, it's not, you know, that 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 unusual uh, uh, for the South. Um, but the reason why people think, you know what I mean, or so often say that their, their ancestry is from Mississippi is because underneath the 250-year uh, crime of enslavement, there's a larger crime, and that is the interstate uh, uh, slave trade, which begins, you know, somewhere, you know, during what they call, I guess, the antebellum period, the 1820s or so, and proceeds on, in which you have this uh, expansion um, or, or this theft of land from Native Americans. Uh, and the need to get people out to that land uh, uh, to work. We, we have whole states that, that would not exist if not but for slavery. Um, Texas, for instance, uh, that is the reason why we, we, we have Texas as, as, as part of uh, uh, America. And so large numbers of black people were sold from Virginia 
into the deep south. I don't know if you like if you follow like um, the, the case uh, in, uh, uh, with Georgetown University. Yep. Um, that's what happened there. Georgetown University, like when they sold off those enslaved people, they ended up in Louisiana. They sold them into the deep south. This is an extremely, extremely uh, uh, common practice. And when those sales took place, there was very little uh, respect for family. Um, and so it was nothing to see, you know, families fractured, you know, strictly for economic uh, uh, reasons. And so that was the crime I, I, I wanted to focus on in, in, in The Water Dancer. The other thing is I was up against something um, that I think a lot of African-Americans feel, um, and that is I, I just don't want another story about slavery. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's a deep sentiment for a, a lot of us. Um, and I think, yeah. I mean, I don't know how good that is, <laughs> but it's true. It's, that, it's definitely true. But I think that might have to do less with the facts of slavery and with how slavery is presented. Mm -hmm. um, and so, as you alluded to, you know, in, in, in most narratives of enslavement, um, the physical aspect, the visceral facts of it are front and center. And so, you know, it's a lot of, you know, whipping, rape, change, you know, a, a lot of that is, 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 is what's, you know, front and center. And, and I guess people would say, well, that's what happened, that's the truth. I'm, you know, we shouldn't, you know, uh, ignore it. And we shouldn't, but there are other truths too. Mm. <clears throat> um, and what I was struck by when I, you know, read the narratives and I was doing my research is as, much as people feel, uh, feared that kind of visceral, physical torture, they really feared was the destruction of their families. Yeah. That was the much deeper, you know what I mean, thing. So I wanted to just, you know. And, and you know, Ta-Nehisi, one of the things that I thought was so powerful in the book, I think a lot of times when we read about families being separated in Syria or Bosnia or someone that, somewhere that feels away or during slavery, we want to make believe that their pain is less than our pain, mm -hmm. that there's somehow, it bothers them less. And one of the things that I think is unique in the way that you've done this, because we become so understanding of who these people are that are enslaved, the separation from their children, or Hiram losing his mother, becomes devastating. Right. More devastating. Right. I, I I don't know how to, I, I don't know if I really mean that it's more devastating, but that's what feels unique here. Right. Right. Well, because you know the people, right? Like right. you actually feel like you actually you know know the people that are actually being parted from each other. Um, and, and you know, I guess that's the work of literature and art. You know, um, to take it away from statistics and to make it, you know, an actual a personal a person. story. Yes. yes. And, you know, the other thing, um, well, let, let me go to this for a second. You use different terms here. Mm -hmm. You use the word tasked mm -hmm. for enslaved the enslaved. Right, yeah. You use quality uh, for the slaveholders. Uh, slaveholders. And you use conduction mm -hmm. as the terms... Um, for how one moves out of being mm -hmm. enslaved. Mm -hmm. How did you, why did you pick those words to repurpose? Um, my editor has, uh, Chris, he has this, this uh, thing that he you know, adopted from Toni Morrison and, and this idea that you, you, when you tell a story, you have to 
make it strange to the audience. You have to make it new. Um, this did it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, if you read this and it feels like roots to you, I've totally failed. You know, um, if you read this and this is no disrespect, if you read this and it feels like beloved, I've failed. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you're not supposed to render like this has to be Tanahasi slavery. You know right. what I mean? Like it has to be as I see it through my eyes. You know, it has to feel different. You know, um, and part of that I, I think is the, the 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 naming of things and the naming of people. And it was interesting because the use of the word caste. So I looked it up. Um, in the dictionary, in a print dictionary, I looked it up. Um, <laughs> and it has a, it, I, and I don't know why this is, and it was probably deliberate, but it has a bigger feeling of oppression, mm -hmm. the word tasked, yeah. uh, than you think of. And I want to read mm. one of the definitions. Uh, you have a couple of things in here about quality, mm -hmm. which... I thought showed both the dependence mm -hmm. of the quality mm -hmm. on the enslaved right. and um, uh, the resounding slap, this was at a party mm -hmm. uh, that Hiram was part of the staff. Mm -hmm. Their grace exhausted the whites were getting restless, and this opened up new possibilities for the night. While they played at aristocrats, we were their well-appointed and stoic attendants. But when they bored of dignity, the bottom fell out. If they chose to play a new game, we could quickly become their humiliated sport, and there was no limit as to what they might do at this end of the tether what my father would allow to save his own face before his tribe. Yeah, my mother put down a book right there. She's like, I'm, I'm done with this book. Why? <laughs> uh, well, that, that party scene is rough, I think, for... Um... It's painful. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's even before anything happens, I think maybe the foreboding is actually worse than what happens. So I'll say this, um, and I can't see how many African-Americans there are, actually. I don't know how many black people there are here. I'm assuming that there's some. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, Those could be white people. I know it could be, right? Pretending to be black. <laughs> right. right. I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume. Um, I should have told the joke, and then I would have known how many black people yeah, there are. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, you know, one of the things I think is, so that's at a party. People are getting drunk and everything. And, and I think, like, for most black people, like, there's this deep-seated, almost elemental fear of, like, being the only black person around a bunch of drunk white people. Like, it's like, you know what Not I mean? Not where you want to go. <laughs> no, nah, you're in the wrong. It was like, you know, um, I can remember, I used to teach, uh, just a quick story. I used to teach uh, up, at, up at MIT, and I would catch a train up to, uh, from uh, New York on the Sundays, and I would, you know, grab my bike. Uh, from back there, and I would I would drive my bike over um, to where I stayed uh, at MIT, and I had the misfortune one night of getting off the train, getting my my bike, and it was a Patriots game getting out, <laughs> <laughs> and nothing happened. But I was like, this will never happen again. Yeah. I, I don't even, you know what I mean. And so the only thing that could make that worse is to be an enslaved black person around a with bunch drunk of whites. With drunk whites. And so, um, and Hiram said, he says, bored whites are barbarian whites, you know, or we're barbarian whites. And what it, 
What he meant by that, I always had to spell this out, is not, you know, white in any sort of phenotypic sense, but just that when people feel they have absolute power over power. you um, and they lose whatever, you know, social controls might be in place, you know, he doesn't know what they might do, you know? And so I think my mom's was just like, nah, that's something terrible is about to happen here, you know? Because, you know, the flip side of it is... There's a portion in the book, I won't read it now, mm -hmm. where there's a moment between Hiram and his father where the, you feel how exposed mm -hmm. the father is mm -hmm. that he has been seen as powerless. Right, right. And that's the flip side of... Right. You're telling the story. Right. Did your mom get to that? She did. She went back okay. after that. She All had right. to take a. She had to did take a. Did she feel second. better after that? Uh, yeah. No. She really. Uh, you know what happened was um. So like part of this book is my mom when I was a kid she really liked romance novels and I, I told her like when I was young I was like I'm gonna write a romance novel for you one day and you got one. That's what I told her. Yeah. And that's what I felt. But she got to that scene. She's like, boy, this is not a romance novel. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't. It's like it's a love story, ma. <laughs> you know. It's definitely a love yeah, story. Yeah, she was like, nah. But, nah. but know, then she went back and read it, and once, you know, she got over it, she but saw speaking, it. But uh, speaking of your mom, mm -hmm. um, so your parents are both black. Mm -hmm. uh, your father, and we'll get back to that in a minute, founded a black classics press, press yeah. in mm -hmm. 1978. Mm -hmm. we'll, come, we'll, we'll come back to that mm -hmm. story. But... Your mom comes from a family that was liberated in the early 1800s and owned land on the Eastern Shore. Yes. And your dad uh, was had a much more classical enslaved mm -hmm. um, upbringing. Yes. How did how did those backgrounds shape your mother on the one hand That's and a your great father? Question. That's a great question. Um, boy, wealth is everything. Um, so my dad, my dad's family is from, from Virginia. I'm from Petersburg, Virginia. So I'm like one of those black people who, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah. you know, you're from Virginia, not Mississippi. <clears throat> no, I, and, and I didn't know though. I actually didn't know until, didn't. We, yeah, they did the, uh, find, we did the finding the, the, the thing. Skip Gates. Skip Gates thing. And then that was how, and my dad didn't, you know, we didn't really know before then. Um, we couldn't really trace past Philadelphia where my dad's from. Um, so like the thing to understand about my, 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 my mom's family well, right, let's start with my dad, because that's where we're at. Okay. okay. So um, my dad's family is, you know, from around Petersburg, Virginia. Um, and they migrate up, actually up through Baltimore and, and into Philadelphia. Um, my dad's family was really poor. My dad grew up really, really poor, you know, with no real sense of, of stability um, in the house. Um, my grandfather had kids by my my. Uh, dad's mother, but also by, by, by two of her sisters also. And so he has like, you know, for all his life, he had a you know, woman who basically was his, his aunt Pearl, as he called her, was his aunt, was basically his stepmother too. He had brothers mm -hmm. who were cousins. I mean, it was a, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a, um, a harrowing situation. I don't think I'm going too far when I say that, you know. Um, he died, his father died like bumming a cigarette on the street. Somebody punched him and he hit the ground and just died. Your grandfather. My grandfather, yeah, yeah. Um, my great-grandfather was crushed to death in a, in a meatpacking plant. Um, my great-grandmother died of Spanish flu. Um, and so they just, 
you know what I mean? All of these, you know, sort of stories, which I destroy. think destroy. Yeah, well, not destroy. Maybe not that far, but certainly um, with some amount of trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, um, definitely that. Um, my mother's side of the family, oldest ancestor we can find, is a woman who first appears on the census somewhere around 1800. Who, you know, a lot of us suspect is actually white. Um, because she's a free woman and depending on where she's living, she shows up as white or, or, or mulatto. When she's living with white people, they say she's white. Um, and also because her son um, was raised, who's you know, my distant ancestor, uh, was raised indentured, uh, but then freed. And not only freed, actually given land. Like when you turn 21, like you taught, taught, taught How to- How unusual was Yeah, that? incredibly unusual, unless the mother was obviously related somehow you know, to, to, to the family from which that land came from. But given land, uh, taught to read, he then goes and marries another woman who was formerly enslaved but was freed and also had land. So then together they have, you know, even more, more land. land. And this is all before the Civil War. Yeah. To this very day, there is remnants of that land in my family. Um, and my mom grew up in the projects in, in, in West Baltimore, right? Presumably poor, but kind of not really because whenever my grandmother got in trouble, she they could always send, oh yeah, she sent her kids down, down south, right? You know what I mean? To the eastern shore of Maryland, which was out down south. You know, um, there was always somewhere to go. And on the eastern shore, you know, they had functioning, you know, in this area, they, they were what we call like functioning families. You know, the men were not, you know, having stories where, you know, somebody got crushed in a meatpacking plant or, you know, yeah. died on the street. That, that wasn't the story. People had jobs, owned businesses, you know, farmers. Like it was, it was a very, very different thing. My grandmother sent all three of her daughters to college. All of them graduated. And my mom used to say, you know, um, to me, you know, we were poor, but you know, when I hooked up with your dad, I had never seen poverty like that. Mm. So she's not, so she is talking about material poverty. She really is. But the manifestations of not having material poverty, you know, of of having, you know, material poverty are, are so much more than not having cash. This will give you great insight into what it means to be a class of people, to be a member of a class of people who has not had wealth compared to another class of people, you know, who has had wealth. If there's, if there's that much difference within the black within community, the black community. Um, what must the, this, the difference be between the black community and the white community? Yeah. And, and I thought about that, thinking about the way you write about your father mm. in My Beautiful Struggle. Right. And he started a press. He worked at yeah. uh, a university. But he, his own background mm-hmm. manifested itself in how he operated as a father, how he operated as a husband. Is that mm. a fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. A statement. Yeah, I think that's fair. But I think um, if I were to be even more fair to him, what I would say is um, there are people who had nowhere near uh, the kind of trauma that my dad was carrying with him, mm-hmm. who are much, much like not even in. The, I mean, to say much, much worse. Not actually, in as good a shape. No, at all. Right. At all. And I mean morally, like in terms of decent, yeah. you know, people. Um, what I, do you think helped him? Be in a better. I don't know. Do you have any idea? I have no idea. I actually have no idea because um, the conditions, uh, I don't know. But uh, what I'll say is my dad and both my mom, what, like high moral people, mm-hmm. you know, are high moral people. 
you know, um, and much of like that whole thing, I just did, I'd be thankful, da, 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 da. Like that's my parents. Yeah. That's what I was taught to do. You know what I mean? Um, that, otherwise they'd smack you or. Yeah, they would do that. <laughs> you know, um, but you know, you just wanna, um, this notion of being a good person, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, was, was really, really high on, on, on the list of things. And you know, my dad's, you know, detailing in the beautiful struggle, had flaws like everybody else has flaws. Um, but once again, I think like the way to measure a life is where is somebody coming from? Yeah. So, you know, I feel like I've done, you know, okay for myself, but I wasn't raised on the back of a truck. I never had that experience. Mm -hmm. I never came home when I was five, six years old and saw all of my, you know, furniture in my entire house sat out on, on you know, on the curb. I, I didn't have that. You know, I wasn't raised with, you know, alcoholic. That, that wasn't, you know. That wasn't your house. That wasn't my house. Um, and so when I think about my dad and I think about how far, you know, he came, you know, and the high character person he developed into, you know, I'm quite proud. That, and that's inspiring. Yes, very much so. Right? That's very inspiring so. to yeah. think. So one of the other themes um, in the book is the role of memory. Mm -hmm. And memory recalling details, Hiram trying to get to the point where he can remember his mother in detail is a form of power. And well, well let, me, let me leave it there. How, what did you want to make sure the reader was taking away from this notion of memory being powerful? Yeah, it's, it's difficult for me to talk about what I wanted the reader to see. Because um, I, I, I try to stay away from that. So how do you think about it go. as a writer? Yeah. So How's I, that? I, I probably, um, you know, uh, through most of my journalism at The Atlantic, I was very interested in memory, you know, and very interested in how um, memory shapes and constrains people and how the need uh, to forget, you know, restricts options. And so in that sense, you know, the, the uh, twinning of forgetting and mm -hmm. being enslaved, being, you know, physically constricted, you know, by, you know, the, in the inability or, or uh, you know, lack of desire to remember. And also, as Hiram articulates in the book, the uh, necessity of forgetting if you're going to be someone who is an enslaver. This was very, very, you know, important. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wanted those, you know, two ideas. Um, there's a part in the book, like, you know, Hiram... And other characters, you know, talk about how uh, the people that have enslaved them have taken everything they can from them. But there's certain things that they just, they can't take. You know, they can't take their music. They can't take their dance. And Aram says one of the reasons why they can't is because they cannot remember. Um, they, they just, they can't get to that, that, that part of them, you know? You know, one of the things to, to bring it to contemporary times, and then I'll, I'll come back to the book that, you know, this term that often comes to my mind is one, willful blindness, and two, silence being a kind of complicity. Mm -hmm. And when I read the book and I thought about the role of memory <clears throat> and forgetting being convenient for the enslavers, um, and damaging to the enslaved, it made me think about what do you think the role of forgetting our past and the role that America has taken with regard to blacks has not allowed us to move forward? Oh, I mean, it's tremendously destructive. 
and it's destructive in ways that we don't even um, realize. Um, I mean, let's just take the obvious. Um, this is so big that you know you could really start anywhere. But let's just take the obvious. Let's take mass incarceration. Okay, um, this this country after 250 years of the practice of enslavement, after uh, you know making itself rich and fat off of, off of enslavement, um, after another 100 years of, of, of Jim Crow, which is you know just more thefts, um, it, it erected. I mean, the largest carceral state ever known to man. Um, you could not have done that. that. That could not have been accomplished without the forgetting of the past, without the regarding of black people as somehow less than human. Uh, to bring it back in the book, there's a moment in the book where Hiram is, is, is describing why um, the quality have to address the task in a certain way. And what he says is you, you, you can't take two children, one white, one black, in the era of enslavement who've been you know, playmates, you know, uh, set up as friends, and then one day tell you know, one of them that it is your destiny to dominate the other and have that child fulfill that destiny and remember how his playmate or her playmate used to be they have to get being. rid of that. They have to forget. They have to get rid of they, it. They have to forget. And, and in much the same way, you know, to, to, to erect a carceral state, you, you, you have to forget all of the, you know, intricacies and all the small things that make black people human. You, 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 you ha it, it, it's it's um, directly tied to the victory uh, 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 of the Confederacy over uh, the historical memory and the historiography and the telling of you know, what happened during the Civil War and what, oh, oh, you know, they were happy to be enslaved. Oh, we had to enslave them because if we didn't, they'd be criminals. You know, this, this, this notion, this idea, people think super predators started you know, in the 90s, it didn't. It's as old as enslavement. I mean, it's what they would literally say about you know, communities of runaway slaves, that they were, you know, if you don't enslave people, you know what I mean, um, they'll turn to criminality. Same thing they said about Jim Crow. You need Jim Crow in order to keep these people in check and keep them from being criminals. And so this um, replacement of actual factual memory with myth um, is key. Because anybody, you know, if you regarded these people as actually human beings, you would look at this system and say, how, how could we? How could we do that? How could we do this? How, how can it be that we have, what, there are 300 million you know, people in America, China has, I don't know, X number billion people, and we have more people incarcerated than China? Well, you know, you know how, how, how can it be that, you know, just in terms of the world's entire carceral population, we have um, such a huge percentage, just given how small, relatively, the United States is relative to the rest of the world. And just if you'll permit me for a second, it, it doesn't even end there. Honey, I'll let you say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it, it doesn't in there. So that, that's the area, like we often, okay, fine. You know, we're within the, the sphere of race. It makes sense within the sphere of race, you know, what, what, what this, is, this is done. And, and I'll just add that, you know, um, although, the, you know, the crossroad population um, has, has somewhat diminished, we will be working on decarceration for generations. It is very easy to go from, I don't, I don't know what, what, you know, our crossroad rate was before 20 per 100,000, just like, the, you know, much of the rest of the developed 
you know, or, uh, uh, the Western world to uh, our peak of, you know, something like 750 per 100,000, you know, uh, which is where we were at just a, you know, a few years ago. I know we've come down. So to get back to that, I mean, one of, uh, I had a good friend, you know, who recently passed away who was a, a, a sociologist. And she said, there are enough people um, right now incarcerated to fill every fast food job in America five times over. That's the sheer number of people. So once again, that's just that sphere over there, right? Mm -hmm. What is the larger damage done to a society when the lesson uh, is repeated over and over again that facts don't matter? <laughs> you know, um, 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 the accumulation of actual knowledge of the people doesn't actually matter. How can you be surprised that you find yourself in this era where it is hard for people to accept the facts of climate change, when you have told yourself over and over lies about the very origin of this country. Um, ignorance is contagious. And the habit of ignorance is more contagious. You know, and so... Um, it's damaging, it's very, very damaging. And, and you know, uh, in the last year, through my own curiosity and circumstances, I ended up reading a lot of books that were set in the 1820s to the mm -hmm. to 1900. You know, uh, David Blight's biography mm -hmm. of Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. Brenda Wineapple's book, mm -hmm. The Impeachers, Steve mm -hmm. Luxembourg's book on separate. And what I, I sort of knew this, but the fact that what happened in that brief moment of Reconstruction. Mm -hmm got obliterated mm -hmm. so quickly. There were more people in federal government. There mm -hmm. were more people mm -hmm. in the legislature. There mm -hmm. were more people voting. There mm -hmm. were more mm -hmm. educated, productive, creating wealth blacks. Mm -hmm. And the backlash, you know, starting with Andrew Johnson, mm -hmm. and how quickly that got destroyed. I mean, that was, that was a pretty brief time. Mm -hmm. And there was so much progress made, and then it was over. Mm. Yeah, and we forgot that, and then we forgot it, and we told ourselves lies about it. You know what I mean? These people were drunkards; they were, you know, unfit for government. How could you take enslaved people and, you know, have them, you know, thinking that they could serve in, you know, uh, government? And I think more importantly, um, we forgot that <laughs> the way our Reconstruction was thwarted was not through uh, petition and legislative conferences and- It was violence. Oh, it was violence, it was pogroms. You know, it was mass murder. You know, it was violent coups, you know? Um, and we allowed that. And the next, you know, 100 years of, of government, you know, in this country was built on that foundation of allowing, you know, the, the complete uh, erasure you know, of, of democracy. I got this thing I'm, I'm working on about cancel culture. And it always amazes me that people think like cancel culture is new, right? <laughs> like, you know, I'm like young people just invented this thing yeah. that, you know, we, we, we never did before. And it's like, you know, what do you think the compromise of 1876 was, right. man? I mean, that's the muting of black America, right? Our entire black side. Done. Done for a hundred years. You guys are out of politics. You're canceled. You're done. You know, this is a governing, you know, um, the problem always happens when people who have power use one tool and the people who do not attempt to use it too. Yeah. 
then you get, you know, that's cancel culture now. You know what I mean? You know, I want to try because, um, sadly, uh, we're running out of time. Mm -hmm. So, in I know, that's sad, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll gloss over this quickly, mm -hmm. that you did extensive research. But mm -hmm. one of the places that you visited was Monticello. Well, that's the wrong question to ask while we're running out of time. But. Okay. <laughs> so... I have a series of questions Oof. about that. I'm, I'm really sorry. Okay, we might be here till now. Okay, ahead, so though. one is... Strap up, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm warning you. <laughs> so one is... I'm warning you. <laughs> when I read about the street, mm -hmm. I, I felt like I was back, because I was mm -hmm. down there mm -hmm. after they've done all the work mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. restore slave quarters, that mm -hmm. the whole life mm -hmm. of the enslaved on mm -hmm. Monticello. Mm -hmm. So my questions about Monticello mm -hmm. are how you thought about that this big, beautiful place existed mm -hmm. because of the enslaved. Right. And couple that with how do you reconcile the legacy of Thomas Jefferson as a bifurcated man? I told you, strap up. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so um, <laughs> first of all, I, I would urge, how many people have been to Monticello? Okay, all right. Um, once again, how many black people have been to Monticello? Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to assume that's not many. I saw like one or two. I'm going to say two. I saw, that's what I saw. I saw like two. Okay. Um, there are reasons why we don't go to Monticello. Um, and there are reasons why we don't go to Monticello-like places. Um, it is like visiting the site of, of a war crime or, or a genocide or a work camp and watching people talk about the fashion of the people that work there. Um, it is very, very, you know, angering <laughs> and rage-inducing um, ex experience. Um, nevertheless, I'm going to urge all people, but black people specifically, to go to Monticello. Because? Because it's ours. Um, I mean that in the most literal sense, okay? I don't mean that in some sort of, you know, overly sentimental. I, I did not grasp, before I started reading, and really before I went there, the extent to which Thomas Jefferson um, was dependent upon, you know, in, enslaved people. Um, there are at Monticello, this beautiful portico, these gorgeous pillars. columns. Yeah, these gorgeous pillars. Um, those pillars were cut and erected by an enslaved man by the name of Jupiter. Um, from the moment Thomas Jefferson got up, uh, his entire day was dependent on enslaved people. They dressed him, they fed him, they got his horse, got him up on his horse. They did everything. We cooked his food, you know what I mean? I just did. And, and see, like, people imagine enslavement as just the enslavement of your hands. Like, they think about, you know, black people just picking cotton and think that's slavery. You know, um, Thomas Jefferson had Sally Hemings's brother trained as a French cook to prepare his, you know, meals. He, he was a genius. I mean, just, a, a, just an absolute, absolute genius. If you ever want to read um, about the evils of enslaving people, from the perspective of someone who was enslaving people, you should read Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he talks about how enslavement is not just wrong for the enslaved, but how it corrupts the enslaver. 
and how the children and, and of beautiful the, writing and beautiful writing it's gorgeous yeah and how the children of the enslavers watch that behavior and they in turn are corrupted not just in their behavior to enslaved people but in their in their behavior to other human beings um this did not stop Thomas Jefferson from perpetrating the, the, the habit of, of, of enslavement. I was um, down at Monticello Tuesday and we were filming something uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the promotion of the book. And I was with somebody and we were being driven around uh, by, by a white dude who, who was working there. And uh, the person I was with says, um, do you think, she asked me, do, do I think, did I think that Sally Hemings loved Thomas Jefferson? Was this a, you know, a consensual relationship? What did I think? I said, well, look, I don't know, but um, here's what I do know. <laughs> when you're a slave, you can't consent. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, uh, in our society today, a 16-year-old kid can talk up one side and down the other how much he was in love with someone, a 30-year-old adult. We don't care. Right. We say that kid can't consent. We don't say, well, the kid said it. No, no, you, 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 you don't have the power of consent at that point. And I think that, you know, it's a whole truth for enslaved people. So a guy, you know, then says, guy's driving. He says, well, you know, they say that uh, Sally Hemings left flowers at Thomas Jefferson's grave every year. I said, oh, I never heard that. But that's okay. I'm not a Monticello scholar. You know what I mean? I'm not a, a Jeff. Maybe I missed that. Maybe, that, you know, there's some things I, I, I don't know. So we, you know, we get off of the ride and we go and we go, you know, we just happen to be uh, walking to see someone who is a Monticello scholar, who's an actual, you know, public historian, you know, who works at, 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 Mon at Monticello, who just happens to be a black woman. The person I'm with then asks her, says, do you think Sally Hemings loved Thomas Jefferson? Do you think this was consensual? And she basically repeats, you know, what, what I say, say, listen, there's no, you know, consenting under enslavement. <laughs> And a woman says, but, you know, uh, they say that Sally Hemings left flowers at the grave every year. And the historian looks and says, we don't know that. So that's absolute myth. We, we have no, you know, confirmation that this actually happened. And it I'm wasn't like, paparazzi taking no, pictures? No, 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 we have nothing. We have nothing. And, I, and I, I, said, I said, have you heard that before? She said, yeah, I hear it all the time. I said, have you ever heard that from any black people? <laughs> because there's a black community in Charlottesville, you see? Like, there are black people there. You know what I mean? Who have been there, right? Who are, you know, descendants of folks that were enslaved there. She said, no, I've never heard that from anybody black. And so this is like about the, the, the lies that are still being perpetrated there. And at the same time, I have to say, you know, even as I say that, there are people that are fighting a good fight. The people like that historian I was talking to who are working, as you said, you know, restored Monticello, let the story of the enslaved be told. On one level, it is deeply rage-inducing to go somewhere like Monticello and see little white kids running around like it's an amusement park. You do feel mm -hmm. a type of way about that. I will say that. You know, and I know people are having wine tasting. I mean, you, you feel kind of way, you know, about that. But at the same time, the flip side of that is that, that there, there are people there who understand this mm -hmm. and are trying to do the work and they really, really need support. And so um, I, I get the emotional need to, to, to retreat. Mm -hmm. I get it. You know, uh, Tom, Thomas Jefferson, for all of his genius, for all of his brilliance, um, died in debt, okay? 
You, you got to be some kind of person to have zero labor costs and die in debt. You know what I mean? You, you got to... I never heard it that way. I mean, who, who, like, what kind of person does that, right? Like, I mean, you don't have to pay anybody that works for you at all. And you can, you know, exploit them. As and far, still. As, yes, and still, and do whatever to them. So, and still he dies in debt. And so, like, um, when he dies, obviously he passes that debt on to his family. So the family. And they actually lost Monticello. They did, they did. But even, even before that, even, even before that, um, in the immediate wake of his death, they look around, they're trying to figure out how they're going to pay off his debt, right? And they look at all of these, you know, fine, you know, accoutrements that, that, that Thomas Jefferson is, you know, he loved like French wine and champagne and all of this fancy stuff. That's how he got in debt. You know, um, all of this stuff that he's assembled, right? And they say, well, that, that's not enough to settle the debt. And they look at the land and they say, well, we can sell it, but that's not really enough. I know good where enough. this is going. Yeah. Um, and they say, well, where is the majority of our wealth here at Monticello? Sending enslaved people. And on the lawn right outside of the house at Monticello, they sold those people. Mm. They sold those people right there on that lawn. They broke up those families right there on that lawn to settle and to ensure that Thomas Jefferson had the right to drink expensive champagne and fine wines. Mm. That's who our founding father is. And you can't like lie to yourself about that. You, you, you know what I mean? And, and, that's for sure. And one of the things that I see, I've, I've heard you say, is that it's critical to see yourself in those that you condemn. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading this, that made me think, did you imagine yourself as an enslaver? Yes, I had to. Mm. I had to. You can't write this book without, there's no other way to write the book. Um, if you um, believe that evil lies in the bones of the people doing it, then, then, then you've lost. Right. Um, and you certainly can't write. I mean, as, as a human being, you've lost. So listen, I just told that story about Thomas Jefferson, all the horrible things Thomas Jefferson did. Everybody Thomas Jefferson knew was like Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Everyone, his entire, you know, social, everybody he knew he regarded as an equal and a human being. His entire social class, James Madison died in debt just the same way. I believe James Monroe dies in debt in just the exact same way. The planner class in Virginia was forever running up debt, despite the fact they had no labor costs. Thomas Jefferson was not unusual in that. When you see large, and this is like what I, so what I say about black people all the time, is when you see large numbers of people and you see some sort of dysfunction, it is no good to talk about the individual you know, failings of, of, of that particular. You gotta start talking about systems. Same thing with, 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 with the system of enslavement. He was, he was part of that system. Oh, he was within a system. Now, he was in a certain role within that system. And there are people within that system who acted more courageously than him. Yeah. He had a nephew, for instance, who in, inherited enslaved people and you know, actually took them to Ohio and, and, and freed them. So there were people who were courageous within that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the mean, you know, average you know, uh, a person in that system would have continued to participate. And so, I, 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 you know, it does me no good as a writer who's trying to uh, uh, convey villainy and evil, but villainy in such a way that you have to imagine that you could be the villain because otherwise it's just sort of cardboard and you blow right yeah. through it. You know, um, I have to ask myself, would I have been any braver? Mm. 
Would I have been, you know, more courageous, you know? I mean, I, you know, I meet white people today and they say, well, there's no way I could do that. Come on, man. Come on, man. I could have done that. I know you could have done that. Okay, you know so, with I mean? that, so with it's, that it's point, like, with that point, but so we get to some of the questions. We have uh, eight minutes. Um, I want to... Told y'all strap up. I know. <laughs> okay, so four years ago, right. on John Stewart, you responded to his, op his observation that you are viewed as more Malcolm than mm. King. Mm. And, and when he, when you talked about whether you saw the arc of justice, the, the arc of time bending towards justice, your response was you saw the arc of time bending towards chaos. Right. Do you feel that way now? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Very much so. There's no, um, I, I, like, I, you know, you have, listen, um, I wasn't raised in a church. I, I wasn't raised with a, a sense of the religious. I wasn't raised with a sense of, of, of predestiny. Um, and so the, the, the belief that the world, and, and America particularly, is inevitably and inerringly headed towards some better future is, you know, one that I just don't buy. Mm. Um, I don't think history verifies that view of, of humanity, period. Um, I'm sure everything looked progressive right up until, you know, the moment that Hitler commenced the Holocaust. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a, a whole era after the Revolutionary War where, you know, many of the states where folks are enslaved, in Virginia particularly, it really looks like, you know, uh, they're going to end enslavement. They do not. And what follows that is the most destructive war in American history. More human beings died during the Civil War than until recently every other war combined together. in America. Together. Yeah. Together. And so, like, these, these like, I, I think it's, for me, look, I'm a writer. I'm not a pastor. Um, I'm not a therapist. Um, it is not, I'm not an actor. It's not my job to get people to go and do things, you know? I um, want to come to that one Yeah, no, second. no, but, but this is important because I, I, I want to be really clear. I'm not demeaning any of the things I just said. I'm talking about my lane, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about staying in my lane and doing the thing that I'm charged to do. Um, and so, you know, my, my job is to, you know, look at things as I see them, you know what I mean? And, you know, say it as I, as, as, as I feel it and not to, you know, flinch or say something different to make people feel good, to, you know, talk a minute at night. That, that's not my job. Yeah. You know, that's not what literature does. So, Ta-Nehisi, I, I, I know that, that, you know, I've heard you say that about staying in your lane. But in fact, your article in The Atlantic on the case for reparations and your testimony with regard to H.R. 40 are, in fact... Thank you creating a dialogue, creating a seriousness about the subject. What role do you see yourself taking in H.R. 40 getting passed or in the kind of activism or advocacy mm. that you have the influence to do, even though it's mm. out of your lane? Not much, not much, because I think what people don't realize is 
the influence actually comes from staying in my lane. Mm -hmm. That that's why it has. You know what I mean? That, that's, that's why a, it has the past. Yes, 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 yes. I, I, you know, I'm I'm just big. Like when I talk, I'm really big on being clear on why I'm talking and knowing what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a really really. I I, I don't want to be. Look, activism is hard. You know what I mean? Getting people, you know, uh, uh, to move, getting masses, a critical mass of people to actually do things, is hard. Organizing marches is hard. Right. Um, voter drives are hard. Like, writing is hard. But staying in your lane gives what you say integrity. I think so. Right. <laughs> yeah, it so. starts, it's not polluted. Yeah, and also, I, well, I just, I don't know about polluted. I, I think it, it makes it good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think it yeah. actually makes it, you know, gives the work, you know, uh, some heft. All right. I'm sad that we're running out of time. We've got to ask. So we have a question from a 10-year-old boy. Okay. Got to ask that. Yeah. Okay. How did you think about combining superpowers and slavery? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know, man. You know, I'm from, you know, Maryland. I grew up in Baltimore. My family's from the Eastern Shore. Yeah. Okay. There we go. I like that. Um, you know, I grew up in Baltimore. Harriet Tubman's from Maryland. And Harriet Tubman was like a superhero to me. You know, when, when I was a kid. And so um, it felt very, very natural, you know, uh, uh, to do that. And also, I, I, when I went back to do the research, you know, some of the things that, you know, I read about, you know, they, they just had the, 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 the momentum and the energy of, 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 of superheroes. And in fact, you, the, we didn't get to talk about the term conduction, mm -hmm. which um, has an element of magic realism, but I've, I've um, read that when you did your research of Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman, in fact, there were mystical, magical yeah, always. things always. that actually guided their own yeah. escape the, the, from slavery. Yes, the enslaved um, believed themselves to live in a, in a mystical and supernatural world. And so it felt very natural to, to have that, that element in the book. So one of the things we also didn't get to talk about mm. in the many subjects is the role of women. Mm. Uh, in the book. Mm. And the women, Sophia, Corrine, mm. Rose, uh, Harriet, um, Athena, right. they have a lot of agency mm. uh, in, this, in this book. How deliberate was it for you to think about making mm. sure that the women in this book did in fact have agency? Oh, I don't have enough time to answer that. Um, <laughs> Obviously, it was really important. Um, one of the things that the Water Dancer comes out of is uh, it is in, in some ways like a critique of notions of heroism um, in American pop culture at large. So I think like a lot of Black people, you know, we feel like we have not had the opportunity to play, you know, the, the roles of, of heroes and heroines. And um, there is um, a, a shortcut way of doing that in which you take the tropes and the ideas of what a hero means, cowboy myth, for instance, and you just sort of paint it black. And I didn't want to paint it black, you know, because if you just adopt... Like a damsel in distress. That's, yes, which is partial to, you know, uh, uh, notions of, of, of myth and, and, and heroism, mm -hmm. you know, in this country. And I guess in, in the West at large, the idea that women occupy a kind of... Uh, that their principal role in a story is to be a man's honor. And to symbolize his, you know, like through, you know, their desecration or their rape, to symbolize an emblem, his humiliation. Yes, um, and I just didn't want to do that. 
I just, you know what I mean? So it wasn't even so much of, you know, you write a full character, the character's going to have agency because they're a full character. Right. But, I mean, it was really important that, that um, and Hiram deals with this and goes through this all through the book, um, but that the women in the book not be regarded as extensions of the egos of, of men. Because there was a moment that Hiram thought it. Yeah, he did. He did. There was a great passage where Hiram realizes that he did consider saving Sophia as an emblem. Yeah, saving then, himself, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask one more question. Mm. Uh, let's see. Which one? Oh, you know what? Let's, oh, well, who's your choice for the Democratic primaries? <laughs> Ain't say it. Not your lane. Not my lane. <laughs> Not your lane. I learned that last time. I learned that last time. Okay. Then here, here's a heavy question. Yeah. What's some of your favorite films? Mm. The last, you know, I'm not the biggest film dude, but the last really, and I always watch stuff really late. So like the last really great thing I saw was Gravity, which I really liked. God, that was really good. That was like a few months ago. I yeah. finally watched it. Maybe last year. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm old. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm old, man. Okay, and let's close uh, with this. This is to a young man who's 16. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a young black man that would inspire him? Oh, man, I, I would say that's not, that's not what I do. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry, that's, that's just Should not... we tell him to read the book? No. Um, <laughs> no, what we should tell him is... Um, for him to search for his own sources of inspiration. Um, that's just, I, 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 I really, you know, I look. I, I can, got it. I can, I can only be me, young man who's, who's out there somewhere. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm so sorry, but I can only be me. I, I can't, you know, um, sit up here and forgive my language bullshit, uh, 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 you know, a quote or something off of the top of my head. You know, I'm 44 years old and I still feel like I'm about as mixed up as I was when I was 16. Um, so I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out myself, yeah. you know? Um, so yeah. So Tanahase, I want to thank the you that's you. Mm. Um, and thanking you for helping us confront our past mm. in ways that create the possibility of a just future. With your nonfiction writing, and now in the exquisite novel, The Water Dancer, your book has rightly been described as a work of staggering imagination mm. and rich historical mm. significance. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.